Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Beat the Press podcast, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. Back alongside me after a slightly premature pre-season trip to La Manga, it's my co-host Luke Chiverton. Hi John. Uh, well, you won't be surprised to hear that that pre-season trip to La Manga was actually postponed in the current climate, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, understandably, understandably so. I was actually thinking, Luke, that our start to this kind of podcast has been a bit like Richie Humphreys during, I think it was like the 97-98 season, where he scored something like four goals in four matches. Everyone got very excited and then you didn't hear a word from him for the rest of the season. Yeah, we really set off at a blistering pace of uh, podcast production. We, we slightly overestimated our own capabilities on that front, didn't we? Yeah. M- m- much like Richie Humphreys by the sounds of things. Yeah, yeah well, the 90s comparisons aside, we've actually used the break between our last episode, which was the interview with Leo Perlman, and this latest episode to put together something resembling a plan for the pod. Um, so from, from now on, we'll be coming to you twice a month. So one episode will be in the usual beat the press fashion, uh, and then there'll be one that's that's more focused on a on a particular topic. And I guess we're we're kicking off the the revamping style with this episode, which is uh, going to follow our more traditional setup, uh, where we're talking to a really really interesting guest um, that's going to touch on a whole host of different issues, and I guess more of a generalised conversation uh, from somebody who's really involved and really close to the game. Yeah. We spoke to award-winning football journalist and author, Michael Calvin. So for those of you who might not be familiar with Mike's background and work, I mean, he's written for almost every national paper. So The Independent, The Daily Telegraph and The Times, to to name-check a few, on a whole host of different topics, not just football. And that breadth of coverage is reflected in the books he's authored and co-authored as well, which make up a hell of a list. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. He's probably our first guest that you know isn't entirely football focused. Uh, he's really across most sports. Um, I mean, some some of the books that uh, and and actually the the personalities that listeners might be familiar with. So he co-wrote Proud um, with former Welsh rugby player Gareth Thomas, in which Thomas talks really quite candidly about his struggles with his sexuality uh, and what it was like to be arguably the world's most. Uh, prominent athlete who was you know openly out as a gay man um mike also helped alistair cook pen his autobiography uh, and he's about i think he's finished but he's about to release likewise the same thing with dylan hartley um and then there's a whole host of football books that he's released as well yeah yeah that, that excellent description i mean the the list of football books is is outrageous so there's some absolute bells to check out um including the nowhere men uh, which is a book about the world of football scouting, which won a Sports Book of the Year award. Um, but we actually focused on one book in particular during the course of, of our conversation with Mike. Um, it's called Living on the Volcano, and it's a trawl through the the realities of football management, what kind of pressure managers are under at all levels of the game. So he looks at managers in the top flight right the way down to Leagues 1 and 2, um, how the pressure affects them. I mean, in, and in some cases, in, in really kind of quite harrowing ways, actually, um, and how they deal with the scrutiny that, that comes with the job. So there's there's, a, there's actually a, a handily, there's a full review um, of the book on the Beat the Press website, which is worth checking out. But in this interview, um, Mike talked us through some of the managers he met and kind of gave us some kind of behind the scenes glimpses into what those what those interviews entailed and. And it made for just really, really riveting listening. 
Yeah, and I guess we, you know, the two of us couldn't recommend that book enough. It's a really fascinating insight into what goes on uh, in the world of football management, which you know lots of people have an opinion about, but actually, you know, Mike's spoken to people up close and personal, and, it, and it's really fascinating. Um, I guess that's enough fanfare. Um, sit back and listen to our discussion with Mike. Our guest this week is an award-winning football journalist and author who has penned books including Living on the Volcano and The Nowhere Men, which won the British Sports Book of the Year. Host of the recently launched podcast, The Gaffer Tapes, it's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, Michael Calvin. Hello, chaps. Hi, Mike. Um, Well, first things first, I suppose, uh, your new podcast is essentially a series of interviews with football managers and it's called The Gaffer Tapes. So you must be pretty happy with the fact that that is easily the best name for a podcast out there. Uh, That that is just fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, you know, just to prove that uh, originality is a myth, um, I didn't realise that there was actually another podcast with it on. And actually, uh, uh, Glenn Moore, a guy I used to work with uh, when I was chief sports writer on The Independent, uh, he got in touch and said uh, they did a series called The Gaffer Tapes 25 years ago. So, you know, what goes around comes around. Oh, so you can't take full credit, but no, it is great. No, we, we're all magpies, aren't we, in this game? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, like I mentioned uh, a couple of books during the intro, but um, I hope this doesn't sound too sycophantic, but it was actually quite difficult to distill the list down to two. Um, <laughs> you've, written a, you've written an awful lot of books. What what kind of, you know, you're a journalist by trade, but it's just a natural progression into, into writing um, as an author? I suppose so, yeah. Um, you know, I was very fortunate uh, that I... Uh, got into journalism at the highest level, sports writing at the highest level very early. You know, I did my first Olympic Games when I was 21. Uh, And that uh, was when dinosaurs roamed the earth, basically. That was Moscow in 1980. And so I've been lucky that I've worked at the sort of, at the highest level within sports since then. And I got into sports writing because... Well, right in my early days, on my, my I basically, I jacked my A levels in at the local grammar school to to join the local paper. Uh, went through the traditional initiation ceremony of having to knock on doors and get photographs of you know, kids who tragically died and stuff like that. And I thought I don't really want to do this too much. Uh, and sport was a great option because it gave you almost the sense of detachment that sport gives you, and emotionally engagement um, at the same time. It sounds a bit weird, but. Um, you see the best in human nature and the worst. And um, it also gave me a ticket to, you know, I've done, I've worked in about 80 odd countries. So I, I loved working across sport um, and, you know, was pretty fortunate become, a, I was chief sports writer on the Telegraph when I was about 27, something like that. And um, so I've covered all the major events and also had the, the scope to do stuff that brought out the schoolboy in me, basically, you know, sail around the world in a in yacht race, did you know, rallying and all sorts of nonsense. Um, so that got me up to just past the midlife crisis, I suppose. I went out and bought a Jag and looked an idiot for about nine months before I got rid of it again. And uh, what I always thought, you know, you know, when you're a chief sports writer or a columnist on a national paper, you've got maybe a thousand, twelve hundred words to to make your point. Uh, articulate your argument and that's great up to a point but I wanted to really look at things in greater depth which is obviously where uh, the books come in because instead of my thousand twelve hundred words I've got a hundred thousand words to play with and you can really get underneath the skin of of, of subjects and or issues Um, 
So that's what I found really engaging both personally and professionally because I found the uh, the process of writing and researching in particular really, you know, fulfilling. Like most of these things, I, I started off as a, a, um, uh, on, a, on an agency called Haters in Fleet Street, uh, run by a guy called Reg Hater, who was a, a sort of post-war legend, uh, one of the first sports agents, Dennis Compton. My first job working for him at the age of 18 was being Dennis Compton's ghostwriter, which is mad. And I wrote a book when I was 20 called Cricket Captaincy with the then England captain, uh, Ray Illingworth. And it was, you know, uh, I look back at it now and I'd sort of wince, but um, did that, had a, another nibble at a, a book on the sailing, but it wasn't until about 10 years ago that, like most things journalistic, I uh, had an idea which was formed in a bar. Uh, and we went to we went to uh, Vegas for my brother's 40th. And I found myself sharing a room with uh, Alan Jacket, who's uh, the elder brother of Kenny Jacket. And Kenny had just settled in at Millwall then uh, as manager. And I was quite intrigued by the nature of that club anyway, and also by the the, the power of stereotype. And I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to spend a year at the club, you know, and, and that access is, is very, very rarely granted. Um, Hunter Davis did it with Spurs in the early 60s. But that apart, um, so I just phoned Ken and, and basically said, look, you know, this is my idea. I need to be with you 24-7. I need to be in all the meetings, watch the game on the bench, be in the dressing room, um, everything basically. And to my great surprise, um, because, we, you know, we're basically we're childhood mates and we'd followed each other's career uh, he is a player, a Welsh international, then going into coaching. Um, and he's sort of seen me develop as a journalist, I suppose. And he said after about 15 seconds, yeah, let's do it. Let, you know, I'll, I'll speak to the chief exec, I'll speak to the owner and see whether they'll do it. Because he said this club does need people to, to make a rational view of them. So, yeah, so that was it really. Um, again, at that stage, publishing um, – they didn't really buy into it, but book on Millwall. Who's going to buy a book on Millwall? You know, that sort of stuff. So I, I, I self-published it for the first edition, and it, you know, thankfully it went down really well and, you know, sold well and was able to, you know, make it worthwhile by by selling on the, the rights to it for, for subsequent editions. And what struck me was the power of the book, not not that book particularly, but the power of a book, which is it sounds a bit sort of trite to talk about it, but, it, there is a sense of immortality that it, it gives because once you capture something or someone between two hard covers, it's there. It's, it's a matter of record. So that team, uh, the Millwall team, which that I sort of spent that year with and you know became friends with and saw them in all areas of, of their working lives, and, I, and it was a great. It was almost my finishing school in football in terms of I then really understood and. Uh, was really educated in what a dressing room is because, you know, by definition, you don't get in there unless you can play and I can't play. So that team, you know, there were there was a, a group of uh, players who were senior players. Um, I call them the governors. They set the standards professionally and personally for the group. And those players are basically almost like captured in aspic. And, and you can pick up on, you can pick up that book up today and not really, it doesn't, it's irrelevant whether it's 10 years ago. Because they are still, and they will always be, 
the 25-year-old or the 27-year-old or the 31-year-old they are in the book. So that, that's where the immortality bit comes in. And when I speak to guys about doing co-writes, you know, I'm, I'm quite particular in, in the sort of projects that I, that I take on because the, the players or the sportsmen, I've been lucky, you know, Joe Barton and, and Gareth Thomas and Alistair Cook and Dylan Hartley soon, they want to do it for the right reasons. And they understand that the book will stay within their family as a record, as a definitive record of not just what they did as sportsmen, but who they are as people. And I think that's uh, that's a really sort of powerful thing, really. It's, it's really interesting, mate. You, t- you talk about kind of a book enabling you to kind of really get under the skin of a subject. And it's interesting, a lot of what you alluded to there was about kind of, I guess, leadership in sport, which has been a fairly consistent theme in, in your work. What, what is it about kind of leadership in, in football and other sports and, and management in particular that sort of captured your imagination? Well, I always try to, to bring out the humanity in, in any subject. And, and I think that transcends what I call forehands and backhands, you know, with goals and statistics or whatever it is. Uh, people always fascinate me and p- people applying influence or power is particularly interesting, um, especially when it, it teaches you so many things. It teaches you about the dynamics of a group. It teaches you broader values in terms of the honesty, clarity, humility, you see those principles in operation and sometimes you don't see them, you know, that which is actually even even more revealing when you when you see how uh, certainly in professional sport it's a brutal uh, often cynical world. So, you know, you can you can really get a good handle on that. In terms of um, you know, the broader aspects of leadership, Luke, I suppose what I try and look at is what the role demands of the individual be it you know and they there there are sort of general comparisons that can be made so uh, you know if you if you take uh cookie and and dylan as examples of england captains in cricket and rugby union there is always something beyond the stereotype because the stereotype is that you've got alistair cook uh i you know nice but dull you know really good but actually there's a lot more you know he said to me when we started talking about the book i don't think you know you'll get a lot out of this because i've not had any trauma in my life and actually when we talked about it and he 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 hadn't even thought about it to be honest because almost the talent takes him to where he wants to go he doesn't almost have to think about it because his talent is so so natural but actually having said he's natural he's a finished product because he is a product of his personality with very assiduous guy and he might not think he's special but actually what he does is special and um sort of the extraordinary stuff is based upon ordinary principles of hard work application all that but actually when you look into his life he was formed in a hugely competitive environment from the age of eight where he went away to choir school at the Abbey. He was then immediately thrown into a competitive environment. So he recalls being left by his mum and dad, and he had, a, he had a brown teddy bear and what he called his QB, which was like a piece of plastic, which he used to throw at the wall just to catch, just to you know keep the instincts going. But then that night, you know, it, obviously you'd leave an eight-year-old kid on his own it's a huge sort of personal trauma, 
but he basically had to knuckle down and he lived in a competitive, almost elite environment from that age. So, you know, the night that he was left by his mum and dad, there was choir practice. Within the end of the, end of the week, he was recording a, a record with Terry Takanoa. He was on show and he was always, he said, you know, look, you know I wasn't the greatest singer, but I'm a seven out of 10 man. So he was, a, you know, he could sing seven out of 10 and he can play cricket seven out of 10. Well, I actually think he probably does more. So that type of thing, actually, I, I, you, you look at what leadership experience, uh, or what, what experience he had as leadership in his early days. And that can come in, 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 you know, traditional forms. So like, for instance, you know, Dylan, Dylan will say his hero is his dad who brought him up in New Zealand I think the book, when it comes out in on September the third, will will surprise a lot of people because there's a spiritual element to, to to Dylan, very very influenced by Maori culture, and there is also that sense of the guy who came over here as an outsider, and that I think informed his his leadership style to a degree as well. Uh, but also there was that that relationship between him and Eddie Jones, where you know basically. Dylan was the reincarnation, or, or let, let's say he's Eddie Jones's representative on Earth. Basically, he was the guy who made sure that the standards that Eddie demanded were met. So, for instance, if they're in a um, if they're having a warm down session in a in a in a pool or whatever, and people have just left bandages about or or, or empty bottles. He would be the one saying, hang on, chaps, look, standards, keep your standards. So there was that, but also that was, it, it, it had a, it was a huge burden on him as well, uh, which does have its toll. And, you know, if we go back to Cookie, you know, he had times when he was really low, really low. And that's where you see the durability of a leader, probably. But people reveal themselves. And, and, uh, that's what I found really interesting. In, because essentially I, I, I have a sort of two-pronged uh, approach to books. I have my, my own books, which, you know, thankfully have been very well received. Um, and then I have uh, what I call my co-writes. So that's, you know, autobiographies or wherever. And I have really exacting standards. So, you know, when I spoke to uh, Gareth Thomas, who is a leader now, has, become, has blossomed into a real leader in a social sense, in, in a, a philosophical sense, you know, he came to me and... I, I always have what I call my speed dating session. I have a couple of hours with someone, you know, usually in a pub or something. And uh, there is a theme emerging here. <laughs> and, 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 and basically, you know, I said to, to, to Gareth, he said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And I said, well, hang on. You know, this is going to be a really painful process for you. And I'm, I'm going to get right into you. you. You need, you can't make a decision after two hours. You need to go away and think for maybe two days, two weeks, two months, whatever you want to take. And he came back in about, about three weeks and said, yeah, let's do it. Now, I pushed him right to the limit on that, to the extent that I sometimes go through a bit of a what I call method, method writing. So, for instance, with Gareth, obviously the key element was his acknowledgement of his own sexuality when he was sort of 13, 14. And he told me that he used to have to uh, turn over and and he cried into his pillow because he couldn't allow his mum and dad who were sleeping next door to hear him so I, I thought right okay and so I actually when we when we stayed with his mum and dad I actually slept in that bed 
because I wanted to get a sense of what the room looked like and almost like imagine myself into his situation. And that was, that's, that's really quite, quite a seductive process really, because it, it, you know, it's quite an intimate process because, you know, he's letting you into, into really some nooks and crannies in his life. And, you know, we, we, we had trust and respect to the extent that when we were talking about his, his suicidal uh, episodes, there was one where he was going to throw himself off a cliff from a promontory overlooking the Bristol Channel. So uh, we went there. It was, there was, a, it was a, a huge day, very emotionally draining day, where we started off in the graveyard, as you do, uh, sitting in the rain, chatting away. Uh, and you know, he used to go to that uh, church late at night, to his village church, and scream at the walls, why me, God, why me, God? And while we were sitting there, he pointed to a grave and said, and he, he recited the, the headstone. He said, I wanted to be in that grave. And you just think, wow, you know, this is this is someone who's absolutely stripping himself bare emotionally. Then we, we drove down to the coast and we walked for about a mile and a half over these plough fields to get to that promontory where he's going to jump. And so I said, right, OK, we're going to go on it together. And there's about 250 foot drop. And um, it was bizarre. It was really surreal because... Because there was an onshore breeze coming in, the tape really didn't pick up. You know, it was, it was quite muffled, you know. But each of us had absolutely crystal clear recollection of what we'd said to one another. And when we got off the rock, he said, that's it. I'm never coming back here. You know, this is closure. And I wonder whether I pushed him too hard that night because he, he was grey. You know, his, his skin was like parchment. And I thought, wow, have I done too much here? And in fact, after the next morning, I spoke to his partner at the time, Ian. And said, "How was he?" He said, "I didn't sleep. He didn't sleep." And so sometimes, uh, you know, and it's, it sounds really quite cynical, but I just thought at that moment, "Yeah, yeah, I've got it." And 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 it's funny. And so something like that then enables you to write because you've got a deep understanding of someone. It enables you to write about what created them as leaders. Because you know, interesting that you know Gareth was a a, a revered leader in a captaincy sense for Wales, you know, hundred caps, and you walk around Cardiff City Centre, and people just love him. So that they loved him for his perseverance, for his I think his his philosophy and his and his personality, but also and he's that's then gone on in terms of his you know work, especially you know having tested HIV positive. Uh, he's a very important social figure, and I think that leadership quality came was was developed through sport, and is actually now being almost amplified in his his more social role. So, so someone like Gareth is a very powerful figure, and at the end of it, I, 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 I never t- the last chapter of that book. I, I didn't tell him what I was going to do, and it was going to be well, it, it was. It was a letter written by Gareth at the age of 40 to himself at the age of 15 or 16. And I showed him it on a sort of sunny afternoon. We were on his patio outside his house and he read it and he crumpled. It absolutely crumpled. And then he got hold of me and he hugged me for about five minutes and he was sobbing like you wouldn't believe. And I know this sounds terrible, but I thought, got it. Got it. I've cracked it, you know? And so that's part of the attraction of, of, of writing books where you get that close to people. Mike, you've you've touched on really eloquently some of the the vulnerabilities, I suppose, that the leaders naturally have. And there's there's one example in living on the volcano, which well, maybe it's not an example of vulnerability, but the pressure that that leaders are, are under. So, actually, referring to to Martin Ling, um, you know, having read the book, that was 
just a standout story. How did that kind of affect you when you were writing it? Well, I, I didn't relate to it as a writer. I just re- related to it as a fellow human being, I suppose. Um, you know, the writing element of it was, you know, I always like my books to grab people you know, by the proverbials in the in the opening paragraph. And, and that was, that book, you know, that book began with the electrodes being put on Martin's head. I think it surprised Martin the reaction to it. He was, again, he very much like Gareth, he was hugely, uh, he had huge moral courage and very, very open and honest. But what he was also is cognizant of the fact that it could help other people in the same situation that he'd been in. So it's very much like, you know, Gareth, where, you know, we went on a, a, a speaking tour after the book was published. And at times while we were writing it, we thought, well, we actually said to ourselves, it sounds really trite to say in this sort of environment, but look, if we get this right, we could save people's lives. And, and you know, amazingly, when we did that tour, pretty much every night we had evidence of that. People were telling us those stories. That Again, that's the privilege of doing something like that. And with Martin, Martin had a huge response to that book, uh, which surprised him. But it also, you know, it percolates down the years. You know, so, well, it is a good example. You know, we're speaking on the Monday morning after the Premier League season has, has ended. Aston Villa survived on the last day. And I was really glad because of Dean Smith. Now, Dean Smith was a very good friend of uh, Martin and as charted in the book, was incredibly compassionate towards him and uh, to the extent of going into the clinic, you know, throwing the curtains open on, a, on his room, when he got him outside to take him for a walk he made sure that he was on the outside of the pavement so that if any sort of tendency overwhelmed martin he couldn't throw himself in the road what you do there you see the person you don't see the football manager so it's a bit like you know the the, the modern the rationale now is deal with the the person and not the player it's very similar with managers managers one of the reasons why i wanted to do that book uh, living on the volcano was the fact that people have a stereotype. It's a bit like the Mill- Millwall experience. You know, you have a stereotypical view of what Millwall is and uh, represents. Managers are almost dehumanized by their job because, you know, people say, oh, well, I could do that job. So, you know, because we've got a generation of football managers out there doing this. And also there's envy, which is another modern phenomenon, you know, amplified through social media, which is, well, he's, you know, if he fails, he's going to get six million quid in a wheelbarrow. Well, hey, well, actually, that doesn't matter. That really doesn't matter. What matters to the people who do that type of job is, well, what does matter? It, you know, there is an obsessive nature. You know, the, these people have an obsessive nature, and the, and the game exploits that. And they are, you know, they're conditioned to, you know, the lunacies of the game as well. You know, it's it's a, it's 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 institutionally insecure. You have to, you know, in what other job that you, you have. So, for instance, Ken, when, when Ken Jacket was at Swansea, his boys used to get bullied in the playground because just his dad was the football manager. And Swansea was a single club city, and the fans were obsessive about it. So, you know, when we talk about pressure on managers, we don't just we shouldn't just think about win, lose, or draw. It's actually much bigger than that. It's it's what's the impact of this on my family? What's the impact of me? On, on my job, on me. And so, you know, within those pages, you've got people essentially switching off. You know, guy, guys driving for miles, not even aware that they're driving or where they're going to. 
because it just gets in there um, into their brain. So you've got those sort of human um, trials and tribulations that people just ignore. And that's what I wanted to do is actually, you know, emphasize that and just say, look, next time you, you really, you know, want to bash on the Twitter and call someone an X or a Y or a Z, just have a pause before you hit send and think about it. These guys cut them and they bleed. Funny enough, there was a prominent manager called me after after the volcano book was out. He's not in this, he's not in that book, and he told me he said, "Look, you know, I, I knew you were talking to the guys." And it's funny actually; it's, the manage, management profession is so competitive. Like I would go and see someone, and they say, "Oh, Mike, you were with X or Y last week, weren't you?" You know, and I say, "Oh yeah, yeah." He said, "What's he do? What's he do?" Basically, so this guy uh, called me and he said, look, you know, I'm not I'm not in the book, but I felt I was re- reading about myself. And then he told me his story where he became obsessive to the point after every game, he would go get home, go into his study, put the match on the PC and demolish a couple of bottles of red wine. And he did so in the knowledge that he was driving away the people he loved his family, you know, his wife, his kids. He said, I know I'm doing it, but I can't stop myself doing it. As it transpired, he had a, his marriage, which I think was about 20-odd years in, uh, it it, um, it dissolved. So, that, again, that's where I wanted to try and give an indication of, of what the job means. And it means so many different things to different people because obviously different personalities and they, they approach it in different ways. But it's this whole thing of it is a job which defines you on a regular basis. It's funny, Mike. I, I mean, given some of those really, really kind of, you know, quite stark examples that, you, that, you've, that you've observed in the course of your writing, um, you know, all of those pressures that are there on managers and their families, what, what's, what's your take on, on the support that is there for people working in the game in those roles? I mean, I mean a good example, you, you talked about Dean Smith being there for Martin Ling, but actually in the same book, there's also a quote from Mickey Adams talking about the fact that you know, managers kind of call each other mates, but it's all a bit false. And actually that brotherhood of management isn't necessarily real. What, what, what's your take on, you know, is there enough support for managers in the game institutionally probably not because you know the nature of football is that once you pass your sell-by date or you your your perceived usefulness you just bunged away like an empty crisp packet be you're a player manager coach whatever the lma are actually you know doing some very good work in that area they have an they have a, like a master class system they have some mentorship programs but ultimately, because it's such a lonely job, you've really got to do it by yourself uh, in, in that sense. You talk to managers, and uh, I remember doing when we, when we were talking about the, the gaffer tapes with, with Chris Wilder, and, and Chris was basically saying, because I, I asked him, look, you guys, because the job is so distinctive, only you really know what the job's about. I don't, you don't. It's it's you have to do the job to understand it and the that sort of level of of empathy of what with one another and Chris was very much of uh, you know the old school where guys were going for a beer or a glass of wine after a game. Uh, a lot of the foreign managers now don't tend to do that, and also because the media, you know, pressure of um, work is is so intense, you know, they don't have time. You know, they've got planes to catch or whatever. But that moment, you know, I've spoken to a lot of managers who do find sucker in those moments where you're talking to someone who really understands what you're going through because they've been through it as well. 
And, you know, there is, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson probably is the exemplar of that in terms of, you know, I can remember to, when, I, when I did the Millwall book, I was in, in the club one day and uh, Ken got a call uh, from a, a lad called Kevin Godfrey, who was his number two for a while at uh, Swansea. And, you know, he recalled, uh, you know, he had this clapped out rust bucket of a MOT failure that used to hammer up and down the motorways from, from Swansea to go and watch games. And he was on the way to a game and he got a phone call and it was uh, Alex Ferguson, well, it, it was Alex's secretary saying, Alex is here for you. And he's thinking, I'm driving down the M4 in this rust bucket and Alex Ferguson's speaking to me, w- w- what's going on? And it was Alex basically said that they had a, a game up, up north somewhere and uh, basically Ken had asked Alex, uh, look, can we train at the cliff? So Alex was basically calling to say, yep, you're okay to do that. You know, I'll come up Friday afternoon or whatever it is. Uh, make sure you give the groundsman a drink. And uh, that was it. But the the sense of wonder that there's this little sort of, you know, not little, I, I don't want to you know, demean the guy, but, you know, there's a guy who's, who's you know, in a pretty obscure job. You know, the, the god of his profession has just got on the phone, which is great. And But you, there are so many stories about Alex phoning people. You know, he did, he did with... With Chris Wilder before the night before the playoff final with uh, Oxford, you know when they go into back into the football league. That again, I think, is another aspect of this whole brotherhood or sense of brotherhood. Mickey Adams, you know, to your point, Luke was actually being honest there because you know, basically they want to you know cut each other's throats, don't they? Because if they don't, they're going to it's kill or be killed, I suppose, to that degree. But there is there is something deeper than that. You know whether that will change because more and more managers are becoming more aware of their brand and are they true to themselves? I think when you get through to them, like, you know, Brendan Rogers was in the gaff tapes as well. And I think it's probably fair to say that I, I did give him a little bit of a kicking in the book in, in terms of, look, you know, Brendan, be yourself. You're really, you know, you're fantastic at what you do. You don't need to have this persona, you know? And it was funny. We had, a, we, we had one of those moments at the end of that, one of the last questions I asked about was, you know, what have you learned in your career and all that sort of stuff. Pretty cliche question, but it usually works. And uh, and he looked at me in the eye and he said, well, you know, I've learned. If, if I went down my time again, I'd listen more. And he looked at me and he said, I'd speak a bit less. And I thought, yeah, it, it's like, okay, mate, message received loud and clear. And and, and I, I love that. And, and I, I have to say, I found Brendan – you know, this is what four years maybe after Volcano, something like that. You can see the personal growth. You know, that's a horrible phrase, isn't it? It's all you know, happy clappy nonsense. That, but the guy he's developed over those four or five years, and I suppose what is he now forty nine, something like that. So you know, it's it's part of life that you you grow up and you pick up things along the way. You 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 mature, and you know, I wouldn't be too sniffy about Leicester's you know, finishing fifth this season because actually that's a hell of an achievement. If you look at the way the Premier League worked out, is that basically the big four clubs with most money took the first four places. So I wouldn't batter him for, for not getting a Champions League place, although they did look as though they were going to do so. So, yeah, people people evolve, they develop, and I think it's a really interesting profession. Mike, you mentioned Chris Wilder and the episode that you you you, uh, you recorded with Chris Wilder on the gaffer tapes, and I think there was a moment during that episode where he he gives in kind of typical Chris Wilder fashion a really direct answer to one of your questions about kind of his managerial aspirations, and I think he says something along the lines of "I just want to win on Saturday," 
That's mm. it. That's all I'm interested mm. in. And I thought that was really interesting when you kind of contrast it with someone like Stephen Gerrard, for example, who is by all accounts doing a good job at Rangers. But uh, there was an interview thing he did with Jamie Carragher, and he was very open about his managerial ambitions and kind of saying, I'm at Rangers. I'll continue to do a good job at Rangers, but you know, in the future, I, I see myself elsewhere. This is this is a, a stepping stone to some extent. Do you think that contrast is is that just a symptomatic of Gerard's standing in the game, or is that is that indicative of a, a trend that you think is kind of developing amongst managers? Well, certainly that you know, there's a younger breeder manager coming out who tend, funny enough, to to be associated with the club that they're working at. So, you know, obviously the, the most obvious examples are Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Man U and, and Frank Lampard at Chelsea. Mikel Arteta had time at Arsenal as well. So he would understand the culture of the club. I think what you're talking about there, John, is individualism or anything else. Uh, what struck me always about Stephen, and he is known simply as Stephen in Liverpool, you know, everyone knows who you're talking about. I went to see him when we did... Uh, a film for BT Sport, a documentary uh, on uh, No Hunger called No Hunger in Paradise, is based on the book about kids and academies and youth football. And what struck me there was the philosophies and the personality traits that made him such a great player were being replicated in his coaching. So, for instance, you know, we got there early to uh, uh, the training base, and he was already in there. And he'd been in there since seven o'clock in the morning, planning his. It was not, he was with the under 18s at the time, planning his sessions, agonising about it all. Can I do this better? And he was interesting because you know he said, "Look, this is making me think now because I've got to think about kids at a certain stage in their lives. You know, are they okay at home? What's that like? You know, what's school going on?" And so he was learning. I think all when he was asked that question by Jamie one you know it always helps if you know the guy you're talking to right so when you share the dressing room you're gonna you're not gonna bullshit him basically well you might but probably not but what he was being is honest and you know it would be daft to expect someone who was a relentlessly driven footballer not to become a relentlessly driven coach or manager because that's you know that's him and also this is where it gets a bit seductive and, you know, football isn't, isn't, isn't about the perfect circle. The perfect circle would be Stephen Gerrard going back to Liverpool, taking over when Jurgen Klopp, you know, heads off into the sunset in four years' time or whenever it's going to be. Will he do it? I wouldn't put it past him because of the nature of the person he is. And there is an element of, there has to be an element of calculation. I think the one thing that the guys have got who come through from a um, you know a modern playing career is you know if you if you've been at a certain level financially of course you're secure so that does take away certain aspects of of insecurity that you'd find in lower leagues where you've got guys on thirty grand a year and you know they're out on their uppers you know more often than not so he's got a very strong sense of where he wants to go I wouldn't bet against him um, and as I said I think he was just being honest there where you know, look yeah. I'd love to, my, for my career to reach a natural conclusion. The other thing I think, well, the, and it's something that Pep Guardiola has alluded to, this whole idea of burnout. And he is in particular, you know, I don't think he's read a, a joke book in his life. Let's put it like that, you know. It's pretty relentlessly intense. Now, whether or not that's going to be ultimately counterproductive, I don't know. But 
you know, he has said, you know, he's already had a year out when he, when he spent it in, in, in New York. He demands so much of himself that he, he maybe demands too much of other people. But he has talked about basically getting the hell out of Dodge when he's 50. And I think quite a few managers will, will do that. Some just won't let it go. You know, Roy Hodgson is amazing. You know, 73 and you know, Neil Warnock, 72. Those guys, it, it's so, so much, the game is so deeply ingrained that they would be probably lost without it, to be honest. Whereas someone of, of Gerard's and, and Lampard's generation will probably bail out earlier, I would think. I spoke to Frank for a film we did for BT Sport on based on my book, uh, State of Play. He was at Derby at the time. And, you know, you have little sort of chats in the, you know, just before cameras roll and everything else. And, you know, I'm just saying, how, how is it, mate? You know, how are you getting on? And he said, I'm knackered. I am so tired. And he said, you know, it's just been uh, just like a whirlwind. You know, he had to then make, you know, he, when he took that role, he was just having a new baby. You know, does he and his wife, you know, they moved to Derby, to, you know, to uproot the family because he had a you know, great lifestyle in London. All those things are going on in the background. The fan doesn't even even consider, you know. So there's all that, you know, th- there is the physical side of, you know, I'm there at 7 in the morning, I'm still there at 11 at night. Sometimes the old manager, I've, you know, I spoke to to quite a few, uh, you know, Warnock will not do is, you know, basically – on Mondays and, and and if there's not a midweek game Tuesdays, that's the number two day at a training ground. You know, the manager would just take a step back. You know, his number two will do the sessions, work it all out. That has to have that that safety valve because if you obsess about that job, it's gonna it's gonna eat you up. It's, you're gonna implode eventually. And um, it's about being aware of your ambitions, but not being controlled by your ambitions. I suppose. Mike, John and I were talking uh, before this interview about kind of the changing nature of uh, kind of the pressure on, on football managers. And, and one of the things that kind of struck us, I think you touched on, on, on the idea of brand earlier. I think you were talking more about the idea of managers having a personal brand. But it does seem that one of the dual pressures on, on managers these days is not only just winning matches, but it's also, you know, having a philosophy, having a brand of football that they play, um, being part of a project. What's your take on that kind of relatively new phenomenon? And also, what about the disconnect between that and the kind of traditional short-termism of football management? Because a, a project and a philosophy is, by its very nature, something that takes a bit longer to introduce. Yeah, you're right there. Um, I suppose if you're thinking about projects and philosophies, put it into the modern idiom, you're looking at Jurgen Klopp and, you know, throughout his career, he's been a sort of five to seven year manager, hasn't he? Went from Mainz and, and, and everything else. It is now. Uh, some some managers tell me that you know when when they go into the job now, they do so with a pretty short term mindset. You know, they might not actually say that in public sometimes, but it's like, look, I know I've got eighteen months if I'm lucky, and and this is particularly in the in sort of the the football league, the FL, where the championship is a madhouse with owners throwing money they probably don't have at a problem that they're never going to solve. Managers are just collateral damage in that. In lower leagues, I've got huge respect and admiration for them because someone like you know Gareth Ainsworth, for instance, I love Gareth anyway. You know, he's got, you know, even when I saw him what, about three years ago, he used to go to the training ground, he used to toodle up in his Mustang and he's got these daft. He, he, I noticed he wore his red shape snakeskin boots for the Wembley game a couple of weeks ago. Now, that guy, 
he's recognizably human being you know he does his, he's a singer in a pub band and all that but he works bloody hard and he has no money yeah, I can remember well when when I first went to see him for Living on the Volcano, I walked into his office and the air conditioning wasn't working. It was spewing out water. So he had a he had like a bucket there. He had a sofa, a red sort of garish red sofa in at the back of the room where his goalkeeping coach used to kit there because he didn't have anywhere to live. And I said, I said, well, what's it like? And he said, well, and he, and he went through his desk and he, he showed me a receipt, like an eBay receipt. For t- I think it's twenty nine pound ninety nine. I think it was, and they they needed a goal net for the training ground, so he went and bought one on eBay out of his own money. And I and I, and I just I just I giggle when he when he showed me it. And I just thought that's brilliant. You know, I love people, no matter what they do, be it you know producing a podcast or writing a book or laying a patio or whatever it is. I love people who care about what they do, and. There are there are many of them in the lower leagues now. Gareth probably has well, he has bucked the trend in terms of his longevity, but I just think about these poor guys, you know, in in League Two. Who you know, there is actually, although there was, I don't know whether this is, this is still going on, but there certainly was a spell where guys at that level were basically working for nothing, like just to get the job just so that they can then rebuild their career or get, you know, establish their rotation and whatever. Because the, the, you know, the turnover factor is just huge. I think it's, again, you know, I'll stand to be corrected here, but I think it's something like 56% of first-time managers never get another job, you know, something like that. You know, I can't quite remember. But so the burnout factor at one end, and you've just got the, you know, the self-immolation of a football club, which is just, you know, you see it in clubs, don't you? Macclesfields and South Ends and, you know, Oldham's and people like that. You know, they're just basically, those clubs are run on a, on a wing and a prayer, basically. And the manager cops the flack for it. And he doesn't, you know, he's dispensed with, with undue brutality. It is this whole thing, you know, we, you know, we're in a situation now where Watford have just been relegated. Now, I couldn't get my head around the Nigel Pearson decision. Although if you look in state of play, I, I spoke to uh, Scott Duxbury, the chief exec, who was unapologetic about their approach and wanted to talk about it. He didn't. He hadn't really talked too much about it before. But in his world, or in the world of the Potsos, a footballer is a widget, but actually he's a human being, and also their manager is a widget. They've had three, well, if you count Mullins, four this season, and that got me thinking about almost the futility or the, the the inbuilt weakness of that system. If you treat a player just like a widget or, a, you know, a, a figure on a balance sheet, what's that player going to do when you just say, right, go on, boys, you've got to do it. You know, I want loyalty from you. They're going to say, well, are you sure? What about me? Similarly with the, with the manager, when, when uh, you know, that, I thought it was a pretty crass decision to, to sack Nigel Pearson. Irrespective, you know, he's, a, he's an, uh, an individual well, a very strong individual, and I would think quite be a handful to manage. But that was mad sacking someone like that two two games into the season, or to the towards the end of the season. And also, what it did, it immediately because you know the one thing about football is a very very small world, and that went straight round. And people were saying, "Well, good, hope they get relegated." And you know, Watford fans probably won't like me for saying so, but it actually did. You know, it was pretty well received when they did go down. It was just, I'm not saying it, it could have been avoided, 
but they would have given themselves a lot more chance if they had kept Nigel for those last two games. I suppose football is a people business, and the problem with football is a people business that treats people pretty badly. Yeah, I mean, you talk there about football being a people business, and unfortunately the game is actually not treating people in the way that it, it should do. And, and you also talk there about the relationship between managers and executives to, to some extent as well. And I just, just wanted to, to, to focus on that for a minute. Uh, clearly, you know, Sean Dyche, I think, talks actually about the relationship he has with the Burnley board uh, on the gaffer tapes. And it seems uh, kind of face value to be quite a sensible relationship but in, in that instance. Um, but there are examples, as you alluded to, where that, that relationship isn't quite as, as sensible. How do you think that's that's changed, uh, you know, over the course of, of time from, say, when, you know, when Graham Taylor kind of went to the FA board in, in the documentary about his managerial role and there were essentially a, a room full of, you know, quite quite old men who weren't particularly interested Very in the, the England team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose it's like anything. Let's, let's look at the example which is successful at the moment, which is Klopp and Liverpool. That is a collective effort, not just on the pitch, which it is, where you've got individual leaders on the pit. So you've got, you know, Van Dyke and Henderson and, you know, quiet achievers like, like influencers like Milner. But off the pitch, everything is subsumed to the bigger goal, which, which is, you know, what they're in the process of achieving. So you've got a manager or a head coach like Klopp, his staff, both coaching staff, but mainly support staff. When you're looking at their science, their recruitment is brilliant. And they've got an empathy, an attachment to the ethos of the football club, which is, you know, there was one crisis point for Liverpool this season. It was only a minor crisis, but it was a very significant one where the furloughing situation was against everything that that football club represented. You know, it's all very well using Bill Shankly as an exemplar of your culture and your ethos. But if you don't behave, you know, it's it's the old story in it, walking the walk and talking the talk. That apart, I think Klopp has a good relationship with his board. There are other managers you look at and you just think there's a, you know, there's a fault line in this one. So, for instance, you know, I always think with, with Jose Mourinho, Mourinho subsumes everything to his, to his own brand rather than the football club's brand. And when you have a football club run on very, very well-defined lines as Tottenham is under Daniel Levy, you look at that and you just think, well, frankly, this is going to go up in the air in about a year, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, John's you know. a Tottenham fan, Mike, so he'll be, he'll be glad that you said that. Oh, is he really? <laughs> <laughs> Fully on board with your opinion, by the way, Mike. So, so yeah, don't yeah, worry. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I feel your pain, mate. Don't worry. Yeah. I just think, you know, you look at that and that does, just doesn't work. And then we go right back to everything that we've talked about. The, the underpinning is the people. Mourinho on one side, Daniel Levy on the other, right? Daniel Levy. Small man, bit aggressive, very, very self-assertive. Mourinho, very self-assertive, very aware of himself and his brand. That ain't going to work. Eventually, it can't work. There will become, a, you know, and it, and I don't know whether it's going to be tomorrow or it's going to be this time next year or maybe, you know, two years' time when he's bored everyone to death. I don't know. But that ultimately, the, the human chemistry doesn't seem right, whereas – you know, if you look across the board, actually, you know, the, the Frank Lampard situation is really, really intriguing at Chelsea. He and, and to, a, to a large degree, also Petr Cech, they're beginning to forge a relationship, which then enables them to bridge the relationship between them and the owner. 
which is obviously the key at Chelsea because it's so you know uh, quixotic, isn't it? You know, you basically get binned every eighteen months if you if you're lucky. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, Manchester City, you are you know there's a, there's a whole new level of complexity when you've got clubs which are basically state-run operations, which is what you've got uh, at Manchester City which you, well, who knows what's going to happen at Newcastle, but if ever that happens, that will be a similar dynamic. And that, again, you know, to sort of round this off, really, I suppose, when you think about it, Newcastle is really quite a good example of of almost the futility of management, where you think you put yourself in, in Steve Bruce's position, right? This season, he has had to work and live for the last three, four months, however long it's been going on, with the assumption that he's, that he's going to get sacked. So everything... That entails, it entails a complete lack of professional respect for him. He cannot, by the nature of the situation, plan. He's got an owner who wants to out the place. That owner will still be in contact with him. You know, we were, we were told that Mike Ashley spoke to, to Steve Bruce on Sunday night, making plans for the future. But there's a guy who's, who, you know, had a, a very, very good playing career, a varied managerial career, but he deserves the, you know, the biggest respect going. Yeah, he's just been treated as a, a serf. You know, it's terrible. And, and, and I feel for him in that situation because it can't be nice working in any job where you know, well, frankly, you know, when, I don't know, when, when my widget company gets taken over, I'm out, I'm out of a job. I'm not going to get another job. It's difficult, and it it does it eats into them. You know, I I did Sam Sam Allardyce for the State of Play documentary, and it eats away at Sam Allardyce that he's not in football. You can see it. You know, it really it's just corroding him his spirit. Now, okay, he's done really well financially out of the game, but equally also when he spoke about losing the England job, you could feel the pain in his words. Absolute, you know, there's a guy for whom the England job represented the pinnacle of a, a lifelong body of work. Was it 67 days? Bang, gone. So again, I suppose to sum it all up, never ever forget that football managers, leaders across sport, they are human beings. They're flesh and blood. And if you shout at them, they'll wince. If you cut them, they'll bleed. And they usually bleed an awful lot. So Mike, I have noticed on your podcast that you like to throw some pretty difficult questions at your guests around like their, <laughs> their, their perfect signings from the whole history of football at any point in time. So right, okay, yeah. we thought we'd prepare one of those for you just to put you on the spot. Um, right, mate. So you clearly have good relationships with lots of managers in the game. Um, one of the things about football managers is, you know, the mythology around them is the thing that kind of captures fans' imagination. Is there a particular manager from the history of football, which is your favourite, which has really kind of caught your your eye you know which manager do you think has the greatest mythology and the greatest reputation in the game i think probably shankly when i was a kid this is this is this is pre-dinosaurs by me i was a ball boy at watford and um they drew liverpool in the fa cup quarterfinal at vicarage road and they came they came into town and you know, I'm this little kid, and the great thing about being a ball boy, you're on the touchline, so you actually game, you feel it, you see it, you hear it. You know, when someone gets kicked and they squeal, you, 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 it's a bit like covering boxing. You know, when you're right on the on on the on the apron, shower with spit and blood, gone as well. And I I saw Shankly there, and they came in, and they were like comic book heroes. You know, it was, it was like Marvel comic coming to life. Um, Yates, who was actually that that game. It was basically Watford won it one nil, 
And they were a team that had just come up from the third division or in the second division. And uh, it was a mad, mad day. And I looked around that day and thought, I want to do this because, you know, you saw like 30,000 people going absolutely nuts. It was fantastic. And that team, that was that was the day that Shankly realised he had to break up his first great team, you know, of whom Ron Yates was one. So he basically was really ruthless. He got rid of them all. And about 10 years later, I was chief sports writer for, before I joined the Telegraph, a group of uh, regional papers called Westminster Press. And I say I was chief sports writer. I was the only sports writer. But I was based in London, so I covered everything, really, for all the evening papers and, and the morning papers. And I've still got, a, funny enough, I've probably got it in the study somewhere. Uh, it's a an album of Bill Shankly talking, speaking about you know, various stories and philosophies and, you know, talking about Tom Finney and, you know, all those sort of stuff. And he was plugging it. And it was just before he died in, in 81. And one thing, you know, what the... I'm an old git, and so some some of the some of the things that go on in press boxes now really piss me off. You know the whole the old idea of um, you know applauding in the press box and all that stuff. Nah, just don't do that. Don't do that. And you get guys taking selfies in press conferences. My word! But um, <laughs> you know, I used to I used to and my 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 personal thing was never ask for an autograph, and I've, I've broken that code three or four times. Got Pele to sign sign something. Um, Nelson Mandela signed his autobiography for me. And um, I got Shankly to sign this album. And it was, I was mortified because I gave him a blue pen and the bloody thing ran out just as he, just as he signed B. Uh, so I've got a two-tone Bill Shankly autograph on this album. But I asked him, I, I said, uh, you know, the first time I saw you was was in this game, you know, Watford FA Cup quarterfinal. He said, I said, what was it like? He said, oh, it's a bitter day son bitter and i then started talking to him about because uh, that was the day i saw my first grown man cry because um you know there was a you know the usual pitch invasion so i i hear across to the main, main stand where we used to we used to change underneath the main stand next to the the home dressing room because you smell it and hear it and we dived into this little entrance and there was a guy it was a guy a liverpool fan and he had a one of these sort of donkey jackets on you know that they like laborers have and he had a long scarf with like a gazillion badges on. And he was sunk against this wire fence and he was bawling his eyes out because they'd lost. And I thought, wow, this is, this is something else, isn't it? So I, you know, I asked Bill about that and, and, and he just said, ah, my people, my people. And I suppose in a sense, if, if I, you know, I've been really, really lucky that uh, I've been able to say that my subjects are my people, you know, the people I write about are my people. And, um, I suppose I, I should thank them for you know allowing me into their lives if it's only for five minutes or a whole year, you know, or even a lifetime. Because that's the good thing about it is that you, you know, I see now players that I knew as a younger journo coming through and being managers. So you you know you you, you grow up with them, you know. Mike, thanks so much. That was that was so interesting. And um, yeah, if you uh, if you ever fancy a socially distanced pint in London when uh, we're okay. around, then uh, <laughs> cool. we'd be uh, we'd be glad to uh, glad to do it. So that was our discussion with Mike Calvin, uh, and it's such a shame, unfortunately, that uh, that our podcast provider has a has a green room rather than uh, an East End pub um, for our guests to wait in prior to recording. Because I would have given her anything to have had that conversation in a pub with 
in a socially distanced pub with Mike, Luke. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all three of us said that at the end of the interview. I mean, we felt like we could have gone on for a good two to three hours um, with Mike regaling us of some of his great stories over a couple of pints. And, uh, you know, that time would have flown by, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was, it was was so interesting. And and I think, you know, we just want to pick up on a couple of points from the from the discussion that we had with Mike. Um, you know, for me, one of the things that, that stood out was um, was kind of the intimacy of the ghostwriting process that he goes through when he when he co-authors books, um, which I thought was you know illustrated perfectly by the by the the kind of Gareth Thomas stories that that he was telling. You know, the um, I thought the story you know, that he told about going back to stay in the bed that Gareth Thomas slept in whilst he was a, a teenager growing up, kind of crying into his pillow because he, he couldn't talk about some of the issues that he was going through. Um, I mean, it's not just devotion to the profession. It's just, I mean, it's just such an insight into, you know, into, into such a well-known character and, and something you don't you know, necessarily hear about too often. Yeah, I mean, it might just be, you know, Mike's particular attention to detail around kind of the quality of the writing that he does when he, when he ghostwrites those books. I must admit, I've read autobiographies when I quite often think the ghostwriter is phoning it in a bit and just kind of uh, running through the greatest hits of somebody's life without really too much detail. But I thought it was really interesting that Mike sort of, in everything he talked about in that interview, he was really, really kind of big on the human element and understanding what makes people tick. And that was very obviously the reason why he's so interested in in kind of football managers. Um, and yeah, and talking about the Gareth Thomas bit, I, I thought the anecdote that Mike told us around kind of retracing those steps that uh, that Gareth had gone through when he was contemplating killing himself. I mean, really kind of powerful and you know quite quite emotionally charged stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's I suppose no surprise as we touched on earlier, coming from from a guy that that wrote Living on the Volcano, which is which is well worth checking out as a as a book, uh, because that that really does that really does go into into the characters behind the people that that you see in the dugout um, on a Saturday afternoon in, in a lot of detail. Uh, you know, and, and he talks actually it's interesting. You know, he talks about some of the some of the stories that, that he's picked up on subsequent to publishing the book so you know he talks about the i think he talks about the the manager that that called him to say um you know after reading the book that you know actually he'd been going home after a game drinking two bottles of red wine in front of a in front of a laptop watching reruns of the game um you know whilst his marriage was falling apart and he he couldn't stop himself from doing it and I suppose that, that also kind of I suppose that also illustrates like, the difficulty in in providing support for for people in that situation as well. Yeah, I found that really interesting, John. I, I, I guess that was one of the um, driving forces around why we wanted to, to to start a podcast about pressure in football because you know it can seem like a, an industry that everybody wants to work in, that everybody's dream job would be working in sport, that be working in football. But actually, when you peel back the layers and kind of look at what it does to the people, particularly at the real sharp end of the, the game, and, and they are always the managers, you know, they are always under more pressure, under more in the spotlight than even the players. Um, I guess it's no surprise that there's managers that are really, really, really under the cosh. And I thought Mike's kind of experience of having observed lots and lots of different managers in lots and lots of different clubs, situations at the very top level of the sport, but also further down the pyramid, you know, he had a real kind of appreciation for different characters and the ways in which that pressure can manifest differently. Uh, Absolutely. And speaking of managers, actually, so um, as promised um, in the first release of our more focused series of episodes, we... um, we interviewed Wickham assistant manager Richard Dobson. Um, we looked at you know, how he built what was described as Europe's biggest psychology program, 
um, a League Two club and how the scheme helps for Wickham's promotion to to the second tier of English football for the first time in their 133-year history. Um, so that that's going to be coming out shortly um, at recording. So so look out for that kind of dropping in um, to your podcast platforms in the next in the next fortnight. Yeah, and really great to talk to somebody who's just on the on the wave of success having just got Wickham promoted to the second tier um you know it was it was a perfect time to speak to somebody who was full of enthusiasm wasn't he John yeah and someone that knows Gareth Ainsworth as well frankly yeah (laughs) (laughs) so uh if you like what you're hearing um please do rate and review um on iTunes or Google Podcasts and we'll see you next time (laughs) 